Thank you very much, Eugene, for, for having us uh, in uh, St. Anthony's College today. Uh, I guess what I want to do with this talk is to paint a very, very general, broad picture of where the conflict is headed. Uh, because sometimes we have the sense when reading the media that while 2016 was for Syria the year of bloodshed, the year during which 17,000 civilians died, the siege of Aleppo happened, well then perhaps 2017 might then be the year of stabilization of the first steps towards peace. And after all, this month of January 2017 has so far been marked by a certain degree of hope. Uh, a ceasefire between rebel groups and the regime has uh, entered uh, a new stage on the 1st of January. Uh, we're talking quite a lot these days about the Astana peace talks scheduled to take place on the 23rd of January in Kazakhstan between the rebels and the regime. And finally, in early February, we'll be talking a lot about the preparation for the Geneva peace process. Um, but I think there are three powerful trends here that make the prospect of stabilization quite a distant one, unfortunately, in Syria right now. The first of these trends that I want to talk about is that the regime, far from abiding to the ceasefire, is actually on the offensive. And peace talks in Astana or in Geneva won't change much to that. It's becoming indeed increasingly clear when looking at Assad's uh, speeches to Syrians themselves as opposed to the Western media that he doesn't really sound very compromising these days when, for instance, he uh, was swearing to his supporters just weeks ago that the regime would achieve, and I quote, a total victory against the opposition. And on the ground, although the regime has officially signed a so-called ceasefire agreement, as I mentioned in the introduction, it is nonetheless quite clear that it intends on continuing its military campaign against the rebels. And the regime here is using two main military tactics to defeat the rebellion. And these two tactics will breed further violence in 2017. The first of these tactics is a starve or surrender tactic. The regime is currently laying siege to over 500,000 Syrians in 13 different opposition-held areas, shelling them and preventing the entry of most basic items, even including baby milk. It's a it's, from a military perspective, however, it's very successful. It's a very successful tactic, which has already led to the so-called surrender of several localities in recent weeks and might, in 2017, even lead to the humanitarian collapse of eastern Ruta, the suburb east of Damascus, where about 400,000 people live, it's more than East Aleppo. The second military tactic that the regime has been using and is likely to continue using in 2017 is a scorched earth policy. This is really about deliberately targeting civilians and infrastructure in opposition areas so as to drive a wedge between local populations on the one hand and insurgents on the other. The NGO Physicians for Human Rights, for instance, recently documented that regime forces have destroyed 360 medical facilities in opposition areas since the conflict began. While the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights claims that the regime's use of indiscriminate shelling has killed 8,700 civilians in 2016 alone. And there is no sign that 2017 will be any different, despite the so-called ceasefire. Just on Monday, regime airplanes bombed a hole gathering refugees in Wadi Barada. It has broken, the regime of course, ceasefire 
uh, uh, many, many times, 27 times the national opposition claims uh, in the past few weeks. But why is it then that the regime does not seem genuinely interested in implementing the recent ceasefire? I see two main reasons here. The first one is that the regime's mil military victory in Aleppo gives it momentum. It gives it momentum and it also gives it an important boost to morale. It doesn't really intend on stopping there, in other words. The second reason that explains why the regime doesn't really seem interested in implementing the recent ceasefire really has to do with deeper structures. It's really about the fact that the Syrian regime is under a lot of Iranian pressure to regain the whole of so-called useful Syria, that is, the uh, heavily, densely inhabited parts of central, western and northern Syria, an area that is crucial for Iran if it is to transfer military and intelligence capabilities in the medium and long term to its foremost ally in the region, Hezbollah, in Lebanon. And so, to keep a hold of this area of so-called useful Syria, Iran has invested much in defending the Assad regime and preserving it. Economically, of course, it's invested much in the sense that it's often estimated that Iran gives $4 billion a year uh, to uh, help, economically speaking, the Syrian regime. But also militarily, by sending thousands of its own revolutionary guards, 900, 900 of whom have already died uh, in recent years fighting for the Syrian regime, while Iran is also directly supervising a network of 25,000, at the very least, Shia foreign fighters who are dedicated to supporting Assad. So given this sheer scale of the Iranian commitment, Tehran doesn't really want to see Bashar al-Assad making concessions just before he manages to secure useful Syria. The second important trend, which might explain uh, the continuation of violence in 2017 in Syria is that the opposition simply won't give up uh, the fight against the regime without a final struggle. Now for sure, the fall of Aleppo in December 2016 has very badly affected the opposition. Uh, first, it has badly affected it at the humanitarian level. Uh, the fall of Aleppo dealt it a devastating blow. The rebels not only lost control of their stronghold of East Aleppo, which is now flattened, but they also lost 4,000 fighters in the battle with the regime, which in total cost uh, the lives of 31,000 civilians and displaced 80,000. At the political level, now, of course, the loss of Aleppo has considerably weakened the Syrian opposition. It has triggered a blame game, which has entrenched divisions as opposed to resolving them, and it has also led to the defection to the Syrian regime from the opposition of two opposition figures, tribal leader Nawaf al-Bashir and Free Syrian Army officer Mustafa al-Sheikh. This is not in itself a game changer for the Syrian opposition, for the political weight of these two figures remains limited, uh, but it still points to the sheer state of disarray in which the Syrian opposition finds itself to be today. Finally, at the strategic level, uh, the opposition's loss of Aleppo has meant that the regime has been able to free up, in some ways, some of its manpower, which until then had been committed to the fight in Aleppo, to renew its attacks on rebel pockets, especially around Damascus. But still, despite all of these challenges, 
the rebellion still remains firmly in charge of much of northwestern Syria, where it's still backed by Turkey, and of southern Syria, where it is backed by Saudi Arabia and Jordan. The fighters over there are affiliated mainly with the Free Syrian Army, and they still have about 40,000 men. They are well equipped, they are funded, and they are unlikely to give up on the struggle against Assad without a fight. This is especially the case in Idlib province, Idlib province in northwestern Syria, which is likely to emerge in the coming weeks and months as the regime's next target. Why? Because Idlib holds strategic significance when it comes to ruling so-called useful Syria. It sits, indeed, close to the Damascus-Aleppo highway, and it's within shooting distance of the Latakia province, which is the heart of the Syrian regime. But the upcoming battle between the Syrian regime and the Syrian opposition in Idlib promises to be slow and violent for Assad because in Idlib, regime forces will not just have to fight the Free Syrian Army but also a much more powerful enemy, Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria which is now known as Jabhat Fatah al-Sham. Perhaps a few words on Fatah al-Sham because it's a group that we're, that we're likely to hear more and more about in the coming weeks and months. It's a group that can indeed count on two important assets which make it one of the most important social and military actors to be reckoned with in northwestern Syria. The first important asset that Fatah Hashem holds is that it's progressively embedding into local society in Idlib. Now, of course, people in Idlib are overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim, but they might not at all sympathize with the Salafi ideology of Fatah Hashem and recurring clashes in Idlib province show that right now. But nonetheless, a number of these people might uh, still appreciate the social work that Fatah Hashem is doing on behalf of impoverished communities in northwestern Syria. Fatah Hashem indeed runs a so-called public services administration, a public services administration which operates electricity grids, manages bakeries, carries out road repairs, in other words, fulfills very important social functions. It's got a large budget as well, a large budget that allows the group to hire local rebel fighters for a salary which is four times higher than a Free Syrian Army salary. These are not neutral things in contexts which are otherwise marked by rates of unemployment which can reach up to 90%. The second strength of Fatah Hashem is undoubtedly its unique set of military skills. In Idlib alone, the group can reportedly count on 10,000 well-trained and well-equipped militants who are manning tanks, now how to launch long-range rockets, and are very strong at special operations. Just last week, for instance, Fatah Hashem carried out an attack on so-called Russian advisors, probably Russian soldiers simply, who were in Damascus, an attack that killed as many as 16 of these Russian advisors. Fatah Hashem also has fighters who are ready to become suicide bombers and to die fighting against regime forces. In fact, in two years alone, between 2011 and 2013, Fatah Hashem al-Nusra back then claimed almost 60 suicide bombings. It is this combination of elements which suggests to me that when the regime will start moving on to Idlib shortly, 
it will not only encounter strong resistance by the Free Syrian army, but also, most probably, a very violent pushback on the part of Fatah Hashem. The third final trend that I want to mention in this talk and that might lead to increased levels of violence in 2018 is the fact that ISIS is actually displaying much stronger resistance than we all expected. ISIS, for sure, has certainly been under a lot of pressure in 2016. Western airstrikes, according to Pentagon figures, have killed 25,000 of its fighters. It has lost 60% of the territory it used to hold in 2014. Moreover, in Syria itself, it is currently being attacked on three different fronts. The first front is that ISIS is being attacked to its north by Syrian Kurdish militias, which are backed by the United States. The target of the Syrian Kurdish militias is very clear. It is to size Raqqa, the capital of the self-proclaimed caliphate. ISIS is also being attacked to its west, the second front, by Turkish troops and Free Syrian Army units. The objective of Turkish troops and Free Syrian Army units is again very clear. It is to clear uh, ISIS from the Turkish-Syrian border and to take over the northern ISIS stronghold of Al-Bab. Finally, ISIS is attacked, though to lower uh, extents, to its south by regime forces and foreign Shia militias. And yet, despite facing pressure from these three different sides, ISIS was actually able to recapture the ancient city of Palmyra just two weeks ago. And it might even, as we speak, be about to conquer the biggest city of eastern Syria, Derezor, alongside its very strategic military airport. So how can we possibly explain the source of such large ISIS resilience? I see here two main elements. The first of these elements is that ISIS is actually very good at exploiting the weaknesses of its enemies. It knows, for instance, that while the Syrian army used to be very strong before 2011 with reported 300,000 soldiers, it has, since 2011, suffered from a massive wave of defections and it has had to compensate by hiring local militias. Now, of course, these militias are quite good, at least some of them, at carrying out offensive operations. What they are less good at, however, is coordinating. It is holding ground. It is devising, devising, devising sorry, coherent defensing, defensive plans. ISIS is, in other words, successfully playing on this weakness to recapture Palmyra, uh, and that is one of the main uh, reasons which I can explain its victory. Uh, uh, against the forces of the Syrian regime last December. The second element which explains the source of ISIS resilience is that it's actually also very good, very skilled at urban warfare. In fact, when ISIS faces a powerful enemy on open grounds, on open fields, the organization very often retreats to the next big city it controls to avoid losing man manpower too easily. And there, in the cities it controls, it mounts sophisticated defenses, sophisticated insurgency, which involves the use of snipers, 
of drones, of spies, of landmines, of car bombs, of suicide attacks, of human shields, and so on and so forth. We see how good, how skilled ISIS is at waging urban warfare right now, in Mosul, in Iraq, for instance, where the fight is slower than we all expected, as well as in the city of Al-Bab, in northern Syria, where Turkish forces and Free Syrian army rebels um, are trying to break into the city, but um, are failing at doing so so far, and it's costing a lot of their lives. Reportedly, over 53 uh, Turkish soldiers have already perished, and 150 rebels have also lost their lives. And all of this suggests to me that the fight for Raqqa might, in fact, take much longer than we all thought. So to conclude, far from simply going away under the weight of airstrikes and ground attacks, ISIS is actually likely to continue mounting a violent and protracted defense of its strongholds. It could even soon gain some degree of new ground. All of this combined with an intensification of the struggle between the Syrian regime and the Syrian opposition in Idlib is probably going to limit the prospect for a stabilization of Syria for some time to come. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Raphael. I'm going to pick up on a couple of these uh, examples that Raphael has given and try to sketch out a little bit of the, the ways in which uh, some of these dynamics relate to regional and local identities and interests on the ground in Syria. So things like this, uh, what Raphael mentioned about the ways that uh, rebel groups within Edlib are embedding themselves within local society or the ways that we see defections of people like Nawaf al-Bashir, the leader of uh, Bagara tribe. And so what I'm going to do to try to to, to emphasize the, 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 reason, the ways that these local identities are functioning is to talk about uh, the ways in which they were sort of formed before the uprising uh, and the relationships of local communities to the regime uh, and then how they're playing out today on the ground. And, and these identities and ties that I'm talking about are primarily concrete ties of kinship and locality. Maybe not the ones people first think about when they hear of an ethnic or sectarian conflict, these attachments like Sunni, Shi'i, Christian, or maybe being based on some kind of uh, doctrine that's hundreds of years old. Of course, these identities are very important to political life in Syria, but those big identities are often built upon local identities, interests, and ties, and sometimes they operate in very surprising ways, like the ones that Raphael's alluded to. So what I want to suggest today is that the desire to defend one's extended family or town or neighborhood is the fundamental motivation for much of what we've seen in the uprising in terms of action on the ground and especially during the civil war period. Sometimes these motivations manifest themselves on sectarian lines and sometimes in other ways. So to give you a better sense of what I mean by these local ties and communities, I want to step back from the ongoing conflict and talk a bit about the way that Syrian towns and neighborhoods were governed before the uprising. The regime ruled the population through fear and violence to a great extent. There's no doubt about that. But fear and violence worked alongside another tactic, that of informality. The written rules for political life in Syria often bore no relationship to actual practice of the state in citizens' everyday lives. This is true for things as consequential as criminal punishment and as seemingly trivial as just getting your ID card or getting documents approved for a property sale. 
The effect of this type of arrangements was to push all aspects of Syrian life into personal relations. I'll start with an everyday example. A regular person with no connections who simply shows up at a municipal office to get his or her government identity card renewed may have the case delayed for months and wait untold hours in a dingy setting. But just a kid who has a relative who has a high-ranking bureaucrat or military officer could be, show, could be shown into a comfortable reception room, offered coffee, and have his or her documents processed in an hour. I should add that these two scenarios that I sketched out could happen to an Alawi person or a Sunni person. What matters most in this case is that not the sort of sectarian identity that the person has, but the concrete social ties that the person can bring to bear on the situation. Those ties to a powerful relative or to a neighbor often flow within sects, and this is what creates the potential resentment and identification at higher levels, independent of any other histories of, uh, of, of violence or regime repression, which for many people is more than sufficient to cause that type of resentment. The city of Homs offers a prime example of how exclusion on this informal and network basis could be translated into sectarian resentment. The city is historically Sunni and Christian, but about a third of the population today is Alawi. Many of the Alawi families that live in the city have migrated there from the surrounding countryside since the 1960s, when the Alawi-dominated Ba'ath Party came to power. Through family and town-based networks, Alawis have monopolized most positions in the bureaucracy, the military, and the security forces. Christians and Sunnis continue to dominate trade and industry in the city, mostly because of the networks and entrenched contacts and capital that they have from before this period of migration. But it's not the case, though, that the regime did nothing to forge links into Sunni communities. One example of such a link is Ghazi Zaib, who was a key intermediary between the regime and many Sunni communities within the city. He headed the local Ba'ath Party branch and was the president of the largest sports club in the, in the city, Al-Karame. Zaib came from Baba Amun neighborhood, which would later become famous for its role in the revolution, and was a generational resident of the city. Here's an example of how, uh, how such an intermediary as Zaib could help to manage communal tensions. In 2008, the Homs governor announced a plan to renovate the city center. Sunni traders protested the plan because they feared it was a regime plot to displace them and their businesses in favor of regime clients, many of whom were Alawi. Hundreds of traders led a protest from the city center to the Ba'ath Party branch, where Zaib met them outside and assured them that their demands would be passed on to the governor and to higher Ba'ath officials. This satisfied the protesters for the time, and the plan was delayed until the outbreak of the uprising several years later. When the uprising began in 2011, protests took place in the center of Homs. Within a month, regime repression and a small number of reprisals from societal actors had escalated to the point where almost 100 people had been killed in the city. Almost all of them, I should add, were civilians that were protesting against the regime. The regime again turned to Ghazi Zaid, who had by then stepped down from his post. They wanted him to help to manage these tensions and de-escalate the situation. Yet this time, members of his extended family were involved. Several had been challenging the regime and been killed, and his son was actually wanted by the regime for his participation in these uh, demonstrations and activity against the regime. Zaib repeatedly refused to collaborate with the regime and was eventually killed in his home, almost certainly by the regime, in late 2011. What can we understand about Zaib's identity from this incident? He has many different attachments that he might find worth defending and for which he might also be targeted. 
a couple, I'm going to throw out a couple of them here and maybe the number of people that might be involved in each of these groups that he could find himself in and find himself identified with. He could think about himself and his immediate family, which is maybe 10 people, his broader network of cousins, maybe around 50 people, the broader Zaid family within Baba Amr, maybe a couple hundred or a thousand or 2,000 people, the whole neighborhood of Baba Amr, around 35,000 people, all of the Sunnis in Homs, 500,000 people, all of the Sunnis in Syria, maybe 15 million, or all Syrians, 23 million. So when we describe this incident, we might say that the Sunni Ba'ath Party secretary was killed by the regime. But I think this should give us pause to think about what this means in terms of what the relevant forces are that are motivating the regime, its challengers, and Zaibi. So when we say that this Sunni Ba'athist was killed by the regime, implicitly, we're saying that this all Sunnis in Syria identity was the one that was relevant in the situation. It certainly plays a role. Zaib was probably disgusted with how the regime had used Sunni and Alawi identities in the uprising, as well as the exclusion that he had to deal with on a daily basis along sectarian lines when he dealt with government matters and had constituents coming to him, uh, who many of whom were Sunni. But this revulsion that Zaib likely felt would be filtered through much more local attachments to his cousins and the broader Zaib family that would make it impossible for him to be an intermediary to and therefore collaborator with the regime. So this case of Ghazi Zaib shows us the ways that the regime developed networks into its economically and ethnically excluded populations. It also shows the thinness of those networks. As violence became more widespread, networks just like this one that I sketched would break down in favor of tighter, more local identities closer, that are closer in to someone like Ghazi Zaib from his family or cousins or neighborhoods. And as the conflict progressed, it wasn't just a question of attacks increasing, but of state authority collapsing, forcing Syrians to think not just about how they want to be ruled and by whom and participating in demonstrations, but how can they remain safe from violence and feed their families. In other words, to protect their most local networks and communities. When we add to this the presence of very valuable resources and, this, and radical Islamic groups, this mix becomes even more dangerous. And for reasons that I'll argue have to do with the strength of ties within local communities and the lack of bridges that exist across them. I'm going to illustrate this point with an example from the eastern Deir Ezzor province. Deir Ezzor is home to a large part of Syria's oil and gas reserves, which was about half of total oil production in 2015 during the conflict and before the U.S. started bombing uh, the Islamic State. The Islamic State was making between one and three million dollars a day from these oil reserves. Now, in this area around the city of Deir Ezzor, nearly all of the population is of tribal background, which means that they today live in villages or cities, but have ancestors that were nomadic or semi-nomadic, raising sheep and doing a bit of farming on the side. Local communities in the region retain many of these bonds of mutual dependence that link cousins and extended family. By 2013, the province was largely out of the control of the regime. Local armed factions had arisen to provide security to towns and to regulate the extraction of oil and distribute its profits to local residents. Many local committees distributed these revenues in a fair manner to the local communities, but you also had warlords arising who could monopolize the wells and take most of the profits for themselves. One of these warlords arose in the town called Jadedet Agidet. His name is Amr Uftan. The people of Jadedet Agidet belong to the Buchamil branch of a broader tribal confession tribal confederation, after which their town is named, Agidet. Now, Buchamil, the tribe, is a large branch, and its members have settled in many villages on the southeastern area of the Deir Ezzor province, 
Amur Iftan is from Jdeid Agedat originally, and his family can trace their lineage there, and many of them live there. But he was living in Deir Azor, the capital city, when the uprising broke out. He returned to his hometown, organized an armed battalion that was loosely associated with the Free Syrian Army, and began to monopolize the profits from the oil wells in his town. Now, at the same time, the radical Islamic group Jabhat al-Nusra was expanding its control over local towns and absorbing local battalions like Ruftan's. Rufdan was not particularly educated or religious. In fact, he was a smuggler before the uprising, but he joined al-Nusra. Now, al-Nusra was based in the town of Shehel, about 20 kilometers from Jade Agidat. So Nusra's institutional base was in Shehel, and its core members were from the town of Shehel. The Shehel residents are also from Buchamel, the same branch of the Agidat tribe that, that Rifdan and Jdeid Agidat are from. But they're from a different sub-branch, and they'd been rivals of Jdeid Agidat residents for years. Now, in late 2013, the Islamic State split from Jabhat al-Nusra, meaning that there was a new radical group on the ground in Deir Azor that was searching for local partners. The rivalry between Jdeid Agidat and Shehel offered a perfect opening for Islamic State to make a local base. Islamic State did just this, offering Ruftan a better uh, oil revenue sharing agreement than the one he had with Nusra, so he was getting more out of this materially. He and his battalion switched from Nusra to Islamic State, and Islamic State set up their local headquarters in Jdeid Agidat. This set the stage for a confrontation between the two towns and between the two radical groups. So you see that we have both this ideological level or the level of a bigger organization and the level of these local communities going on at the same time. This war began in April of 2014 when Nusra shelled the town next to Jdeid Agedat that also is from Ruftan's sub-tribe, uh, same sub-tribe and had pledged loyalty to Islamic State. Similar incidents would occur and escalate until the Islamic State would finally take over the whole region several months later in July 2014 by shelling Shehel, killing 28 people and displacing most of the village. The battle to control Deir Azor and its oil shows the ways in which radical groups use tribes and other local communities, and vice versa, the ways that these local communities will often instrumentalize their linkages to these bigger, uh, these bigger groups in order to get something for themselves. Now, if we were to ask what's behind this escalation, ideologies, tribes, town identities, or individual interests, we can't give a single clear answer. They intertwine, and powerful actors trade on this ambiguity to accomplish their goals, usually at the cost of average Syrians. So these overlapping identities and interests underlie the conflicts that are going on today, which Raphael has spoken about. Even if the Islamic State is defeated militarily, these identities and interests will continue to structure conflict, negotiation, and settlement. The small rivalries present between the towns and the branches of tribes that were present before the uprising have become much deeper enmities based on real physical damage done by local communities to each other. The case of Jadeid Agidat and Shehel is a prime example of this escalation. The violence has also increased the isolation of local communities that once may have had ties to a broader tribal structure or to the state institutions. Ties to such a broader umbrella, which crossed localities, had helped to regulate conflict and prevent escalation of violence before 2011, but they've been smashed by the conflict. What remains are local networks and forms of social organization. Any settlement will have to take into account the interests of these localities and the, con and the conflicts that have arisen between them in order to build something that's more durable in the future. Thank you.